XLE Indian Lake. It's 8 o'clock. Good morning. This is Northern Light for Wednesday, June 14th. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. Public schools have new guidance on gender identity. Students can request their preferred name and pronouns be used in school without parental consent. More coming up. Also, before the legislative session ended, lawmakers changed the state's campaign finance law. But some lawmakers say there are major problems. I cannot support this bill because... I believe it betrays the original intent of New York's path-breaking campaign finance law. Fort Ticonderoga has resumed guided tours of Lake Champlain aboard its carry-on cruise boat. And we take a listen back to when Champlain Valley reporter Kara Chapman hopped aboard last summer. Also, as part of our ongoing series on birders, we talk with Derek Rogers of the Adirondack Land Trust. He says a big moment for him was snapping a shot of a cedar wax swing with his point-and-shoot camera. And I'll never forget, I pulled that image up and I was almost in shock just at how sleek and beautiful this bird looked. And I was even more surprised that I could see something like that in my own backyard. All of that and more is just ahead on Northern Light. Stick with us. Broadcast of Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio is supported by Mountain Orthotic and Prosthetic Services, a full-service practice committed to providing care for patients of all ages with offices in Lake Placid, Plattsburgh, and Malone. Details and referrals at mountainonp.com. And by Blue Seed Studios, a multidisciplinary art center featuring classes for adults and youth, concerts, art exhibits, and more. BLUseedstudios.org. This is Northern Light. I'm Monica Sandreski. And I'm Todd Moe. New York public schools have new guidance on the use of students' preferred names and pronouns. As WSHU's Sabrina Garone reports, teachers are not required to inform parents about their child's gender identity. Under the framework from the State Education Department, students can request their preferred name and pronouns be used in school without parental consent. However, situations will be addressed on a case-by-case basis, taking into account the student's age, maturity, and mental health. The state says the goal is to promote student privacy and confidentiality. Under federal and state law, changing names and pronouns on official school records is required by districts if documentation of a legal name change is provided. The guidance also allows students to use the restroom that aligns with their gender identity and recommends teachers stray away from using boys and girls to address their class. For North Country Public Radio, I'm Sabrina Garone. Before New York State legislators adjourned their session over the weekend, they approved a measure to alter the state's fledgling public campaign finance system. It's a change that critics and some legislators say undermines the original purpose of the program. From Albany, Karen DeWitt has more. 
When lawmakers approved the public campaign finance system for statewide offices in 2019, they said it would empower small money donors and weaken the influence of deep pocket contributors. The program, which takes effect in the 2024 election cycle, would have provided a six to one publicly funded matching system for donations to candidates between $5 and $250. Donations above that amount would not be eligible for the matching funds. But just before that election season gets underway, the Senate and Assembly change the rules. Now, donations of up to $18,000 can be eligible for public matching funds. People should be really pissed. John Caney is with the government reform group Reinvent Albany. He says the change subverts the intent of the original program. Instead of offering an even playing field for small donors, he says it gives a taxpayer-funded windfall to big-money donors. While only the first $250 of the higher amounts can qualify for the match, it still boosts the donation. I'm the CEO. I write my check to the state senator and uh, for $10,000, and then the state taxpayer pays another $2,300 in public matching funds uh, for a total of from that $10,000 contribution. That makes no sense. Caney's group is not alone in their criticism. Editorial pages from the New York Times to the New York Post castigated the revisions, saying it sabotages the public campaign finance law. The bill narrowly passed in the state Senate, 32 to 31. Senator George Borrello is a Republican from the Southern Tier who voted no. He says the change will favor incumbents who are mostly Democrats in New York at the expense of primary challengers, as well as general election challengers who are often GOP candidates. This has gone from being a grassroots effort to essentially an incumbency welfare program. Several Democratic senators, some of them who were original co-sponsors of the law, also voted no. Among them, Senate Finance Committee Chair Liz Krueger and Senator Rachel May. May won her seat in a 2018 primary where she challenged a longtime incumbent. I cannot support this bill because I believe it betrays the original intent of New York's path-breaking campaign finance law. May says she can no longer tell her lower income constituents that a public campaign finance system would give them a voice. The bill next goes to Governor Kathy Hochul. The governor, speaking in Albany Tuesday, said it's just one of hundreds of bills that she'll examine over the next few months. I need to look at each one very carefully, make sure there are no unintended consequences to anything we do, and that's going to be the one of my highest priorities. Hochul says she was not part of the decision to change the public campaign finance laws, and she has not decided whether to sign it. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. Glens Falls High School unveiled its new mascot logo this week. According to the Glens Falls Post Star, the Glens Falls Black Bears logo was revealed during a pep rally on Monday night. The mascot redesign comes after the State Education Department introduced a policy last November requiring all schools to retire Native American-themed mascots by the end of the school year. The mascot was Indians. A student committee was formed to choose the new mascot. They gave surveys to get input from the student body and the community and announced the new mascot in April. 
A police captain from Clinton County died over the weekend from an illness linked to the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Christopher Garrow was 47 years old. He became a police officer in November of 2000. Less than a year later, he was assigned to help search and rescue at the World Trade Center site after 9-11. According to state police, Garrow died on Sunday due to an illness linked to that assignment. He was in the police force for 23 years and lived in the Clinton County town of Peru with his wife and two daughters. You can keep up with NCPR throughout the day on our Facebook page and Instagram and Twitter or at our website, ncpr.org. You're listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. It's eight minutes past eight. Good morning. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up, we'll collide aboard the Carrion, a wooden 1920s-style cruise boat on Lake Champlain. Then stick around after that. Birding in the Champlain Valley is both a passion and a profession for Derek Rogers. As part of our series on birders and birding, he'll tell us about his love for birds and protecting their habitats. That's coming up in just a few minutes here on Northern Light. NCPR's fiscal year wraps up at the end of the month, and we'd love to hear from new donors. If you've never given before, consider making a contribution today. You'll support the music, the news, the information you depend on every day on NCPR. It's easy. Go to ncpr.org slash give. And thanks. This is Alan Dunham in South Glens Falls. You can hear more of his music on our website, ncpr.org slash underscore. Northern Light is supported by Fort Dealer Presentation, inviting the public to a June 17th ceremony marking the fort as a historic site of importance by the National Society Daughters of the American Colonists, fort1749.org, and by North Country Children's Museum, Potsdam, with hands-on and minds-on exhibits and programs for children 12 and under and their families, open Wednesday to Sunday, 10 to 5, northcountrychildrensmuseum.org. It's springtime here in the North Country, and that means it's time to get back out on the water. At the end of May, Fort Ticonderoga resumed guided cruises of Lake Champlain aboard the Carrion, its wooden 1920s-style cruise boat. Last year, almost 6,000 people took the boat tour. Our Champlain Valley reporter Kara Chapman was one of them, and she brought us this story last summer. I'm aboard the Carrion. Fort Ticonderoga's wooden 1920-style cruise boat. It's a warm, clear evening, and Lake Champlain is calm as we take off from the dock near the fort's pavilion. Tonight, the ship is steered by Captain Bill, but the tour is led by Ethan Nick. He's Fort Ticonderoga's maritime interpreter. Now, uh, before we get going with our cruise this evening, guys, first I want to introduce myself. My name's Ethan. Hello, hello. It's great to have you all this truly lovely afternoon. 
Nick's wearing the uniform of a midshipman, a low-ranking officer in the British Royal Navy of the 1770s. He's got a blue frock coat over a white shirt with two rows of gold buttons, plus beige breeches. We head south toward Mount Defiance. That's a high hill that separates Lake Champlain and Lake George. Now, you're on this lake, say, in the year 1755. Near the beginning of the conflict, we know is the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War, whichever term you prefer. It's the year the French begin building the fort over there in New York. They call Fort Carillon. Fort Ticonderoga was called Fort Carillon under the original French occupation. Nick explains that at the time, you could travel north on Lake Champlain to the Richelieu River. Next, an overland connection, or portage, gave you access to the St. Lawrence River and modern-day Quebec. That was the lifeblood of France's North American empire in the 1750s. Similarly, on the other side of Mount Defiance sits Lake George, a major hub of Britain's empire in North America at the time. And so you can see Fort Carillon here sits right at the junction of these two imperial worlds. The whole globe is about to be immersed in this massive conflict of the Seven Years' War. And what's more, this fort is designed to guard the central portage or overland road running around Mount Defiance that ultimately connected Lake George and all those southern waterways to Lake Champlain and all those important maritime highways to the north of here. That's why Fort Ticonderoga is here. That's why it becomes the center of events so very quickly. Throughout the cruise, Nick goes deep into detail on Fort Ticonderoga's battles, but also Revolution-era ships and even tales of rum runners crossing the lake during Prohibition. There's a couple dozen people on the boat with me. They shout out questions, and Nick fields all of them with the same level of enthusiasm. One little girl asks if the lake is home to a monster. Call him Champ. Get it? Champ, like Champlain? Yeah, I see the face you're making is like, really? That's my thoughts exactly. But people say that Champ is real. The best evidence that I can think of is... At one point, I sit across from Robert Young and Judy Lansky. They're siblings from North Carolina in New Jersey on their first vacation together since before the COVID-19 pandemic. They say they're intrigued by the fort's history, but their initial inspiration for visiting Ticonderoga lies hundreds of years ahead of the 18th century battles it's known for. Star Trek. Trek. (laughs) In addition to the fort, Ticonderoga is home to the Star Trek original series set tour, billed as the most accurate reconstruction of the original series set. I'm a a diehard original series Star Trek fan. Mm -hmm. But he wanted to see the fort, so I was like, okay, we're here. As we chat, the bartender comes around with complimentary glasses of punch in preparation for a toast. Now I'm on the job, so I don't participate in this part of the tour. Nick says the punch is based off several period recipes, which usually combined strong liquor, plenty of water, sugar, citrus, and a sharp spice. Today, that's nutmeg. Give you an idea of what the British Army and British Navy were enjoying as they were about to toast to the success of this critical mission to sail down the lake and try and take American hell Ticonderoga. Nick offers up a toast to the success of the King's Arms, but one cruiser has a different idea. How about one to the captain and uh, announcer? Nick's history lessons continue as we make our way back south to the Carrion's dock. He says he hopes we've gotten an idea of the importance of water to the country's history and the role it still plays today. And so, when you think of water as a highway, it's no surprise that for so, so long, 
Lake Champlain here rather than say just dividing New York from Vermont, preventing people from getting where they need to go or what have you, has instead drawn folks from literally all over the world to this very spot for so many different reasons. Sometimes amicable, sometimes violent, and war and in peace, and over a huge span of time as well. And sometimes that's for a peaceful and historical boat cruise. Kara Chapman, North Country Public Radio, on the waters off Fort Ticonderoga. Fort Ticonderoga's carry-on cruises are offered twice a day, Tuesday through Sunday, and its sunset cruises start back up again in July. Kara's story originally aired last summer. Listening to Northern Light here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Todd Moe. And I'm Monica Sandreski. Coming up in just a minute from hobby to career, birding as part of the job. That's in just a few minutes. Then stick around after the show for Bird Note why birds need bird baths in the summertime. That's just ahead at 842. But first, Todd has a look at the weather for us. Looks like a chance of rain over the next few days. Uh, light showers, maybe an isolated thunderstorm today, a high around 70 this afternoon with light winds out of the southeast. Some light showers tonight uh, with lows in the 50s. And then tomorrow, much the same, about a 60% chance of isolated showers. Thursday, highs mid-70s and an 80% chance of uh, showers on Friday, highs in the low 70s. We have partly cloudy skies, 59 degrees in Canton right now. Sometimes birders in the North Country are lucky enough to combine their personal passion for birding with their professional careers. Derek Rogers is one such birder. He's stewardship manager for the Adirondack Land Trust based in the Champlain Valley and a longtime birder. Rogers grew up on Long Island and remembers fishing and clamming with his dad on the North Shore where he saw lots of shore and seabirds. He studied environmental science at SUNY Plattsburgh and now lives in Willsboro with his wife and daughters. And along the way, he's maintained a love for birding. As part of our ongoing series of conversations with birders and about birding, I caught up with Derek this week to talk about bird conservation, his work at the Adirondack Land Trust, and the spark bird that got him interested in birding. Yeah, interesting. I, you know, I love this question and, I, and I've thought about it quite a bit. And I haven't figured out yet if it was my experience with coastal birds at a young age or a cedar waxwing that I photographed back in 2001 with my first point and shoot camera. And I'll never forget, I pulled that image up and I was almost in shock just at how sleek and beautiful this bird looked. And I was even more surprised that I could see something like that in my own backyard. So I do think that that was probably the moment where I went from casually enjoying birds to pursuing more of a hobby that then developed into a very strong passion and eventually leading to my involvement in some key citizen science roles throughout the state as well as carried on with me throughout my whole professional career. And Derek, in many ways, you're doing things professionally and also as a volunteer in terms of birding, bird history, ornithology, conservation, all those aspects. 
That's absolutely right. So, um, yeah, and it, and it definitely does intersect with what I do at the Adirondack Land Trust. But yeah, so volunteer wise, you know, I've been what's called a review coordinator for the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's eBird program, which is a tremendous citizen science database. So my job is to essentially look at sightings that are submitted through this citizen science database and vet those records, communicate with the public. Um, I started doing that on Long Island back in 2012 in both Nassau and Suffolk County. And quite quickly after I moved to the North Country in 2019, I ended up assuming um, that role up here in the Adirondacks as well. So I know what's going on in the ornithological world in the North Country. And I also write for a publication called the Kingbird Journal, which is through the New York State Ornithological Association. My co-author and contributor is Bill Kruger from Plattsburgh. So you are an avid birder. You uh, you travel around the region quite a bit. And I'm just kind of curious, is there a, a bird species that you're keeping an eye on uh, as an avid birder, as a conservationist? What are you most concerned about? Yeah, so I have a lot of thoughts about that. Um, and I think it varies geographically. And I think one of the sort of amazing things about the landscape here is how vast it is and how few people there are that are actually really spending a lot of their time looking and trying to figure out the distribution of birds in certain areas. So we have this gigantic landscape here. A lot of land is in private ownership. So when I think of, you know, as a conservationist and potential species that I'm worried about in this particular region, I think of grassland birds. So these are species that specialize in grassland type habitats. And given the huge decline and conversion of those habitats, grassland birds are facing the most rapid population declines over any group of species in North America. So here in the North Country and other parts of the Northeast, large hay fields are serving as those functional grasslands. And they host a variety of these grassland birds like grasshopper sparrows, northern harrier, and bobolinks, just to name a few. But the challenge comes when haying, typically that first cut, needs to take place during the most critical time in which these birds are nesting. And unfortunately, these fields go silent following the loss of nests, eggs, and young chicks that haven't fledged yet. But all that said, like so in being here and working with so many different private landowners, I feel a great sense of hope as almost all of these landowners I've spoken with um, who host important populations of grassland birds, they want to know what they can do to help. So while it's concerning, it's equally inspiring to me, at least. And I just again, I feel that great sense of hope. And that's sort of where one of the areas of my work at the Land Trust ties into birds. There's there's some takeaways that I've connected in. It's that North Country residents clearly love their land and they respect the wildlife that utilize their properties. And when we have conversations about grassland birds and management, they genuinely want to learn more about how they can manage their property to achieve their financial goals, but also to do it in a way that won't negatively impact birds. I've noticed that many of these landowners, as a result, have taken direct action in management, whether it's delaying haying, maybe on a portion or all of their fields, or pasturing certain fields at different times, or even setting aside sections of fields just for grassland birds. So you know, birds connect. I always say that. And it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is or religion or background. Everybody has a story about birds. And 
I've just seen that all over the world where I've traveled. You can always spark up a conversation by talking about birds. Okay, uh, go back, Derek, and uh, I want to give you a chance to tell us more about the Adirondack Land Trust. Uh, give us the, the sort of uh, elevator speech that you would about, about its mission. Sure. So, you know, one of the questions you asked is, you know, so how does birding connect with my work at the Adirondack Land Trust? So the Adirondack Land Trust is primarily a land conservation organization. So we help increase the size of the forest preserve here in the Adirondacks. We manage our own public preserves and we partner with private landowners, working with them to protect their lands and helping them achieve their goals while conserving important natural areas. So this is through an instrument called conservation easements. And this is where our farmland protection program really comes into play. But so when you combine all of our land protection work, it adds up to just over 27,000 acres. But it's so important to recognize all of the other attributes that are protected or conserved within that acreage. So just a few examples, 82 miles of river and stream shoreline have been protected. Over 14,000 of the 27,000 acres are within important drinking water catchments. 28 of our projects made lands accessible to the public, and over 7,000 acres of productive farmland are now conserved forever. So my job as the stewardship manager is to work with our conservation team and to manage these protected lands and these partnerships. So one of the first things I did in adding to those stats after I was hired, and this was just a fun thing that I did, um, I wanted to try to figure out how many bird species have been documented on lands conserved by the Adirondack Land Trust. So I looked at everything from the shores of Lake Champlain to the lowland boreal forest where we've, you know, helped protect land either with the state or in partnership with private landowners. And I discovered that it was 212 bird species um, thus far that have been documented on lands protected by the Adirondack Land Trust. So this is a, a really a pretty impressive number, and I only expect that number to keep increasing as the Adirondack Land Trust continues to grow and make big impacts throughout the North Country. I don't know if birders necessarily want to divulge a favorite birding spot, <laughs> but, uh, you know, give us an idea of when you take the time to go birding in the North Country, is there a favorite location? I'm happy to share. I, I, I think you're, you're probably right. I think some birders probably would not divulge. But so narrowing it down to the site level, I will, I will say that I, I love birding the Champlain Valley for a variety of reasons. So that's another discussion. But and I am in, I live in Willsboro. So maybe I'm a little biased, but narrowing it down to the site level, if I had to choose one particular favorite birding spot in the North Country, it would have to be Noblewood Park in Willsboro. It's at the confluence of Lake Champlain and the Boquette River, and it features just this beautiful sandy delta that juts out into Lake Champlain. So you get this combination of water birds, shorebirds, forest birds, and it just yields some incredible species diversity. Um, Noblewood alone has hosted 215 species of birds throughout the years thus far. Um, so no single site in the North Country has had as many documented species as Noblewood Park. Derek Rogers is stewardship manager for the Adirondack Land Trust based in the Champlain Valley and a longtime birder. He, he uh, leads birding trips too. You'll find more about his bird tours on the website adirondacklandtrust.org. Uh, and as Derek Rogers said, 
Everyone has a story about birds. Want to share the story of your love for birding? You can email us, radio at ncpr.org. We'll go out with a little music from Matt Nakoa. He is performing tomorrow night, Thursday night at 7.30 at the Clayton Opera House. And this is Tumbleweed Tango, a piece from his newest album, Antique Dances. Tumbleweed Tango. Catch Matt Nakoa tomorrow night, Thursday night, 7.30 at the Clayton Opera House. That's it for Northern Light for this Wednesday, June 14th. Morning Edition continues in just a minute. Coming up, as anti-drag and anti-LGBTQ policies become more common, San Francisco recently appointed the country's first drag laureate. That conversation coming up in about 15 minutes right here on North Country Public Radio. Then join us at lunchtime today for fresh air. We'll hear from members of Tupac Shakur's extended family and their role in black liberation movements. That's coming up at lunchtime between noon and one right here on North Country Public Radio. I'm Monica Sandreski. I'm Todd Moe. Be well.